Hello. Hello. This is Joya Italiano. And this is Jeff Ekman. And welcome to No But That's a Thing. A podcast where we talk about the science ideas that are contained in sci-fi movies. Yeah, neither of us are experts in any of these things, but we care about them and we feel like we can make it interesting for you. So we Googled some stuff after watching a movie and here we go. Here we go. Hello. Hey, yo. How's it going? Uh, me? I'm good. How yeah, I'm out, to everybody. To you. Everybody out there in yeah. radio land. How's everybody doing? We watched Galaxy Quest. We sure did. A movie that I find to be a delight. I do not, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, everybody has their own opinions. <laughs> no, I, I do really like this movie. I know that it's unexpectedly good, in mm-hmm. my opinion, based on what you might think going into it, but I understand you have other opinions. Oh, yeah, I highly disagree. It felt like a little watered down, but then still had like just like the casual sexism, not even casual, just like blatantly thrown in there. That was well, that was like the it was making a comment about, but it wasn't. It was making a commentary about it at first, and then it ended with her tits out with no like there's no challenging of those things. There's no it's just it is what it is. And I think similarly to how we talked about with like Naked Gun, it's like I can appreciate it for what they are, but it's. I am not a fan of just like it being so flippantly treated, and it I, was just it was just silly. But I hear that, I, you know. But I totally understand why people like this. Well, movie. yeah, because like the justification I would say is that they are becoming what their characters were in the show, right. which is that. But then you're right that like. But at least Tim Allen steps up and and becomes a captain, whereas this is like, and just as it should be, Tim Allen is captain and Sigourney Weaver's tits are out, out, you know. I had, like, compartmentalized this movie completely. Mm. I really was like, I've never seen this, and here we go. And then as we were watching it, I was, like, getting these flashes and was like, (laughs) you compartmentalize this because this enraged you as a kid. Like, when I was a 15-year-old girl watching it and Mm. was, you know, when you're banged over the head every single fucking day of your life that women are reduced to their body parts, it was like, I couldn't watch this with, like, a light heart. And the difference between myself when I was 15 when I saw it and now is, like, I can watch this and not want to kill myself. Right. You know what I mean? Right. It's and not to say remotely that like Galaxy Quest is responsible for my body dysmorphia, <laughs> right. but this is in the long line of everything else that just treats it with such flippancy that I, watching it now, is kind of like, oh, this is why I hated this movie. Okay, I I, I get that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I understand not being able to ignore that, but also I think Alan Rickman's performance is hilarious. Oh, and yeah. Like, I just I think mean, like other things in that movie do really work, even if that... I see your point, and I, I, I think I, I probably, do for me, the only thing that works in this movie is Alan Rickman. Like, he was a shining bastion <laughs> of light in just, like, a dark, dumb movie. I was smiling I and laughing. It. I know you were. I saw you. <laughs> but, you know, um, <laughs> um, what are you going to do? But anyway, it still gives us some great, some fun things to jump yeah. off. Well, maybe we should hear a little bit of the trailer. Let's do it. In the far reaches of the galaxy, a civilization is under siege. We are all that is left. They've searched the universe for a leader. Stay tuned for scenes from next week's Galaxy Quest. Never give up, never surrender. What they got. Never give up and never surrender. We're struggling TV actors. You are our last hope. Where's my limo? And they're about to put on a command performance. Eight million light years away. We are actors, not astronauts. Now, acting like heroes. The whole thing was just a misunderstanding. May not be enough. Galaxy Quest. You're just gonna have to kill it. We'll go for the mouth to throw his vulnerable spots. It's a rocket that not any vulnerable spots. 
yeah, like delightfully hokey and it is what it is. But also, it, not that it was the first of its kind, this idea of parody, taking something like the Star Trek universe yeah. and turning it on its head and like, what if some what aliens if really Shatner, thought that... Yeah, yeah, actually had to go and be Captain Kirk. Totally. So like concept-wise, I was like, right on. I, I can appreciate this. Yeah. Especially like how interesting it is that you have Sigourney Weaver who started as Ripley, right? Yeah. And then she gets to kind of play the a completely okay. different angle. Even when we think about like the Contact episode, what would aliens think of us if they saw us? on TV yeah, or yeah. they saw any you know that's why they have like Chuck Berry in the time capsule yeah, and all this yeah, stuff like it, our representation in the world well what if aliens right. thought like that our people that played <laughs> astronauts on TV actually were astronauts because in contact it's like oh man they were looking at the Hitler broadcast right and in this it's like oh man they're, they're watching Babylon 5 exactly why don't we start with some Area 51 stuff does right. that make sense now I do not think that there are actually aliens that have landed there. And there's a lot of reasons for why people might think that there are aliens there. Mm -hmm. Now, one of my biggest pet peeves is the word UFO being applied to aliens. Uh Because what does the UFO stand for? Unidentified flying object. Unidentified being the key word there. So it doesn't mean alien flying object. No, it just means like we didn't know what the hell that flying object was. Could have been anything. Could have been a bird, a plane. I, it could have been some piece of anything Superman. that is just in. Yeah, well, hopefully it's <laughs> Sorry. Waiting for Superman. It's definitely not Superman. If you're not going to say it, I will. It's not Superman. <laughs> no, um, uh, sorry. What were you saying? No, I mean, it just, yeah, it could, it could, be, it could be anything. It could be a piece of debris that yeah. got back into our atmosphere. The real thing that seems to be happening at Area 51 is airplane testing. And the U-2 testing, like the U-2 spy plane, began testing in the 50s. And the thing is, normal aircraft back then could only fly between 10,000 and 20,000 feet. Mm. And they knew that like there were military planes that could fly up to 40,000 feet. But the U-2 plane would be flying above 60,000 feet. And any commercial air flight that was going at 10 to 20,000 feet would look up, see this thing flying over 2,000 miles per hour above it Uh and it was like a titanium shell that reflected things in a very specific way Uh anybody would think that's a ufo right sure and then in the 60s they started a thing called project oxcart Mm -hmm. which was studying aerodynamic structure and engineering designs and the shape was that of a disc-like fuselage oh boy designed to carry vast quantities of fuel And commercial pilots would look up and see the bottom of it going by way over their heads, super fast, and it would be circular. Oh, man. Like the Mm -hmm. iconography. Like you think of a UFO being that little disc-like Exactly. Now, one of the well-researched but also like questionable big theories that came out a few years ago Mm. is from this reporter named Annie Jacobson. And she wrote this whole thing about Area 51 that is mostly really well regarded. And then there's like these seven pages where she cites an unnamed source that she really claims is like, this guy is the real deal. I have every good reason to believe him. Mm -hmm. And he says, this is crazy, that the crash at Roswell was Russian made crewed by human children who were surgically altered to resemble aliens by Nazi death camp doctor Joseph Mengele. What? By the order of Joseph Stalin to freak America out. Oh my God. So the theory is that Stalin was like, okay, we're going to scare the hell out of America. We have Nazi scientist Mengele. He 
surgically altered some kids to look like aliens and dropped this over America to basically do like a War of the World style freak America. Out. Oh my God. You know what's so crazy is like as wacky conspiracy theory as that sounds, it's kind of like, it, is it, it's certainly not beyond the realm of imagination. No, it's, it's like. I mean, you know what's so crazy is if you would have asked me three years ago, even just like how much like Russia is in our jargon now. Yeah, like it feels yeah. very Red Donny, right? Like uh, very like American kids have to protect America from the Soviets. That uh, seems like such a trope of, of yore. Yeah. And now it's like, oh no, we're back in it with the fucking Russians. Right. Are we ever well, going to not be? Yeah, because we were literally two years old when the Soviet Union When fell. the wall came down, yeah. So it was like we never grew up in a yeah. time other than like seeing an older movie like Red Dawn. Exactly. That would be a reality that they're like actually the, yeah. the villains. Right after World War II, they like descended the Iron Curtain and sure. like didn't let any information out of Russia. Well, also, I mean, in terms of even just the space program, the whole thing has been between Russia and the United States, yep. like the space race. Who's going to get there first? So mm -hmm. why wouldn't you try to destabilize the other power that's trying to get there? And that was even and like... we're so easily scareable. No, we're so scareable. <laughs> and then like, and then, but, but what it really seems like was... American government was basically like, look, we'll let them believe whatever they want to believe because we'll keep this. This is just our secret place. And like, if they think it's aliens, who cares? I know. Oh, my God. For, what I really always assumed was there based on nothing was that was like where we were doing our Nazi experiments. Yeah, like on weird people. tests. Yeah. Because like the idea that we wouldn't have in secret done like dabbled in some of that right like if mk ultra is real which it is real like, what is that that was a program from the 70s to give people lsd to see if oh, yeah. like what kind of crazy shit they could do ted kaczynski was one of the people who was a member of mk ultra and then actually like you know became the unabomber oh my god really yeah so wow. that's like if we were doing stuff like that in secret then which has since come to light what were we doing in the 40s and 50s? If the Nazis were doing some experiments, I would be surprised if we weren't doing ones too. Right. We had the Manhattan it's Project. Almost, totally. I mean, and that's what's so kind of fucked up about it is it's easier, that cognitive dissonance, it's like easier to believe or for people to like put on their tinfoil hats and think that it's alien activity happening mm -hmm. than just really believe like, no, Area 51 is actually just where Americans are doing some fucked up fucked shit. Fucked up shit. Um, I don't know that that's true. Right, no, but, but I mean, that... It makes so much sense to me that Way that would be it. Way more sense than abducting people and giving them anal probes, which is what I want to talk yeah, about. Yeah, all right. When well, it, are you done? Into some anal probes. Cool. Yeah. So I was looking into this. I mean, this movie deals a lot with tropes of just not only just the sci-fi world, but extraterrestrial life in general. And I got to thinking about this weird idea that um, aliens will abduct you and probe your butt. <laughs> I mean, to the point where it's one of the first fucking South Park episodes, Cartman gets an anal probe. But I was looking into that because I was like, where the fuck does this even come from? Like what, no. you know, some of it is based on quote unquote testimonies from people that were quote unquote abducted by aliens mm -hmm. and they're being put under hypnosis and they're like, yes, and then I saw this thing and that thing and whatever. And it couldn't have just been a weird guy who, you know, did some weird shit. Yeah. Too. Or you couldn't be just like making it up. You know? That too. I mean, there's a lot. So I read this article, this guy's blog who kind of put together a catalog of all the times that there was this reference. 50s and 60s is when there's some references like with Twilight Zone and Outer Limits but it didn't start getting more intense until for example 1987 there is this horror fiction writer by the name of Whitley Stryber and he had this book called Communion which is widely considered to be the most influential alien abduction account even though Stryber did not specifically identify the creatures that abducted him as space aliens. He never uses the phrase anal probing when he recounts what he supposedly remembered but he does discuss the aliens violating him anally. 
Quote, Soon I was in more intimate surroundings once again. There were clothes strewn about, and two of the stocky ones drew my legs apart. The next thing I knew, I was being shown an enormous and extremely ugly object, gray and scaly, with a sort of network of wires on the end. It was at least a foot long, narrow, and triangular in structure. They inserted this thing into my rectum. It seemed to swarm into me as if it had a life of its own. Apparently its purpose was to take samples, possibly of fecal matter, but at the time I had the impression I was being raped, and for the first time I felt anger. So I read that excerpt Whoa. and I was like, this is deeper than any abduction. Like, what is happening here? Mm-hmm. And then it really got me thinking about, remember when we did the Alien episode and Ridley Scott, oh, yeah. one of his main things was uh, was like really playing on those fears of male oral rape uh-huh. and male rape in general. Like the idea of the, the alien being inside you and jumping out, just yeah. basically being invaded against your will. And I just find that so fascinating. I'm like, there's got to be some correlation here, right? Like, yeah. I'm, I'm a female and, you know, the, the fear of rape is everywhere all the time mm-hmm. and yet I'm like wow that is some coming together of the sexes yeah, when clearly yeah. this is like the pervasive thing but then I was reading more about it and I was like what was it about this time specifically like 1987 like the late 80s uh-huh. that this became such the trope that it is it's interesting to note that anal probing enters ufology as a form of primarily male rape, and that occurs in the late 1980s at the height of the AIDS crisis when penetrative male-on-male sexuality was heavily stigmatized as a carrier of disease and therefore something to dread. Notice that Stryber, describing his probing as essentially a rape and that the penile device was thrusting within him as though it were a living phallus. I'm not the only one to make this connection. Several books from the 1990s drew a parallel between alien anal probes and AIDS fears. Wow. Isn't that wild? So it really, so it started in like the 50s and 60s, but yeah. exploded with anal probe being specifically yeah, well, like it, during the AIDS crisis. Right. It sounded like at first they kind of explored <laughs> just the idea of experimenting on people in general. Just like, well, prob- yeah, yeah. If in the 50s and 60s was kind of when like we started doing a lot of animal testing. Mm-hmm. Testing started being like in a scientific environment right. and just the idea that there would be another species that like the Test way we you. treat mm-hmm. chimps you know that we would be the chimp right planet of the apes yeah yeah like being looked at in this oh but mm-hmm. yeah so then in the male rape fantasy it's like being treated in the same way that you know a, a woman is treated by a straight man you know like <laughs> right, all of the weird right. like all the like homophobia and misogyny and like fear of rape like mm-hmm. all wrapped into this one muddied kind of area and then you have it like blown up because of the aids crisis it's just crazy I'm always fascinated how art imitates life. There was also something that, for example, colonoscopies didn't widely be used for general public as a preventative measure until after January 1987 when Ronald Reagan famously underwent the procedure to remove polyps from his colon. <laughs> so it was what? like like colonoscopies weren't really like a thing until Ronald Reagan had a colonoscopy. So then now then when the technology, like the medical technology kind of caught up with it too, it's like people's brains are just so overblown. Like, yeah. you're going to stick that phallus in my body. <laughs> Yeah. For a medical procedure? Like, it's just, it, I don't know. And just the idea that when you don't know anything about something, you just kind of poke at it yeah. and prod it and, like, yep. accidentally, like, just, like, cut it to see what happens. Mm-hmm. But really, it just boils down to that what I suppose is a very human, not male, not female, but human fear of yeah. being violated against your fucking will. Yep. And being treated like an object, because we treat animals like objects when we test them. We Mm -hmm. don't treat them like they're sentient creatures. So when you look at it bigger picture, we're just as meaningless as the fucking lab rats that we test on. Well, so much of Rod Serling's writing, who created the Twilight Zone and wrote Planet of the Apes, Uh so many Twilight Zone episodes are just off of that idea of like, what are we doing to these animals? Right. And how would you feel if the tables were turned? Exactly. Like, that's what the Twilight Zone is all about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the pig face thing that we've talked about right. before, where it's right. like, you are you look pretty for today, but w- what if the whole society 
was ugly tomorrow and, and and you you were pretty by our standards but were ugly by their standards mm-hmm. how would you feel about that how would you feel if you were treated by a alien race that doesn't see your humanity but treats you in a like right. clinical kind of medical yeah. research way totally makes sense a though right a fear of ourselves yeah. in a way that we would be afraid of the probes Absolutely. I think that's pretty much right on the money because we know like the darkness (laughs) that is within. Anyway, so that's all I have about probing questions about 1980s culture. (laughs) There is a rocket that's in development by NASA Mm -hmm. that was originally conceived by this former astronaut named Franklin Chang Diaz, who in 1977 had this idea for what is known as Vassimer. Mm-hmm. or Variable Specific Impulse Magnetoplasma Rocket. Yikes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it can't work in an atmosphere, so it only works in space. So it, you can't use it to launch things to space, but mm-hmm. like you can use it for deep space missions. And it basically creates this insanely strong magnetic field and then uses that to superheat this plasma and shoot it out the back. There are like no moving parts. It's just like a magnetic field that's being created by this machine that then can continuously shoot plasma out the back. Right, interesting. And so instead of burning all the fuel at once, you can actually turn it on and off, which is a huge feature of it. Wow. And then the other thing is it can run for a really long period of time. Mm-hmm. So even though it's not a really strong rocket, you can eventually get to an incredibly high speed because once you're in space, each moment of acceleration will continue making your speed faster and faster. It could reduce the travel time to Mars from two and a half years to 39 days. That's amazing. And it's way safer and just better. And it was originally supposed to be tested on the International Space Station in 2013. Mm -hmm. And they were going to use it to reboost the space station because... The way that works is like with atmospheric drag, as the space station goes around the Earth, there's still a little bit of the atmosphere that's really, really, really thin Mm -hmm. up in space. And it causes enough drag to bring the space station down and down. And so it needs periodically to be reboosted to keep the same orbit. Otherwise, it'll fall to Earth. That makes sense. And they wound up deciding not to do that, even though it would cost 1 20th the price of what it currently costs to reboost the space station why there were arguments over whether or not that would be a good test bed for it but anyway funding cuts and well that's what i was gonna say so who is say again you it was supposed to launch from the international space station but who is like running this program is this an american program this is a nasa program oh it's nasa and there's the company that nasa works with is called ad astra Mm -hmm. is the company that actually builds it they're trying to get it ready for deep space missions right now uh, fucking sucks about the budget cuts though, huh? Mm-hmm. And I'm a little concerned that that might continue. <laughs> yeah, it might. I mean, but this is a rocket that they've been like conceiving of since the 70s right. and are like ready to test now. I know. They've been like working on it continuously since then. That's where I take some solace is like, this is a project that's like one of those incredibly long, yeah. <laughs> decades long of development. Right. And, it's not like they're scrapping it entirely, right. but they aren't pushing forward with mm-hmm. it as fast as they right. could. But the way it works is just such an interesting, like, when you see it, it's this crazy blue light. I don't you know, magnets. <laughs> it's just like magnets, you know. So in the movie, they have to go find like a thing called a beryllium sphere, Mm -hmm. which is for you Trek fans, it's the equivalent of the dilithium crystals. Anyway, it's fuel for their thing. (laughs) But beryllium is actually a real thing that is like a really strong, really lightweight piece of metal. 
So like the equivalent of a 36 pound piece of steel would only weigh eight pounds if it were made from beryllium. Mm -hmm. And it was used in the Apollo program for like gyroscopes and stuff like that. And it's also used for housing around a nuclear core. Mm. And while researching this, found out about something that was done during the Manhattan Project. These experiments that resulted in two deaths. They had a plutonium core that was supposed to be 5% below criticality, which means that it'll release an incredible amount of radiation if it reaches that. Okay. And it was called Rufus, mm -hmm. and they renamed it the Demon Core <laughs> because it killed two people. Aww. And in short, there were these experiments that were designed to test how close to criticality it was mm -hmm. and the first one they were stacking these tungsten carbide bricks around the housing of the plutonium core mm -hmm. and this guy harry daglian he was working alone and he accidentally dropped one of the bricks and Oof. it landed directly on the core and immediately released a huge amount of energy oh my god and he threw the core the brick off the core and it immediately stopped the criticality but he had received a fatal dose of radiation oh shit and he died 28 days later. The next year, there was another guy named Louis Sultan. And he was doing an experiment where the way it worked was there were like two half spheres of beryllium. And if the two of them touched, then it immediately went super critical. Mm -hmm. And the experiment that they needed to do basically had them keeping the two parts separated using the flathead of a screwdriver. Oh, wow. And they would like twist their arm and manipulate it to get it to be closer and further apart. Oh, wow. And so it was very precarious. And Enrico Fermi kept telling them that they were going to be dead in a year if they kept doing this. And he referred to it as tickling the dragon's tail. Oh, boy. As, I mean... Just playing with fire, basically. Like, yes, fucking around. Yes, yeah. fucking with the fucking dragon. Yeah. On the day of the accident, Slotin's screwdriver slipped outward a fraction of an inch while he was lowering the top reflector, which allowed the reflector to fall into place around the core. Instantly, there was a flash of blue light and a wave of heat across Slotin's skin. The core had become supercritical, releasing an intense burst of neutron radiation estimated to have lasted about half a second. He twisted his wrist and threw the thing off of the top of it, which immediately stopped the criticality. He died nine days later of acute radiation poisoning, and the person nearest to him, who was watching over his shoulder, was partially shielded by him and was hospitalized for several weeks with extreme radiation poisoning and survived, although he died 20 years later of a heart attack, which they think may have been related to this. Sure. Ugh. So, yeah, they changed the name of that core from Rufus to the Demon Core. The thing that I found craziest, too, was after the second death, they then figured out a way to do experiments via remote control machines from a quarter mile distance. Wow. So, like, why did it after the second death right. is when you were like, maybe we should do this? I'm not surprised by that at all. Like the, the guy in the second one, he used to do it in like jeans and cowboy boots, and he was like all gung ho about like, eh, "I'm living on the edge with this oh, fucking so fucking stupid." I know, but yeah, well, I mean, you think of, you think about all of those casualties of just people that are kind of at the forefront of innovation, and you know, you're taking some yeah. risks, but it's like that seems like just a dumb risk. I know, <laughs> like I just know. like 
this is NASA, but we don't have any other options than holding our flathead screwdriver. I know. It, like, they they just were doing shit. Yeah. Like, it, it, you don't, they didn't know what the hell they were doing until they were doing it. Yeah. Which you, I guess that's science, right? But at the same time, it just seems like, don't go out of your way to do the most risky thing. What I is this, know. finance? Like, I, what? come on. <laughs> this is right. Slam. There was, like, another story surrounding the Manhattan Project where... They tested a nuclear bomb underwater underneath like a fleet of fake ships to test what would happen to the ships above. And then like the ships survived. And so they sent something like 50 or 100 people onto the ships to like drive them back home. And all of those people died. Because they didn't even know that the radiation would, like, release from the bomb underneath. And right. And radiation poisoning is not, like, sometimes you, like, see the visual effects immediately, right? right. But some, like, most of the time you don't, right? Yeah. Because well, it's, like, internal. Well, because if it's not acute radiation poisoning, it's just basically giving you cancer right. at an incredibly high rate. Right, exactly. But if so it's acute radiation poisoning, it could be, like, up to a month, as was the case with one of the guys, right. where he's probably puking and his skin's falling off right. and like it's really bad but i guess what i mean is like when you don't I, maybe from their angle it's like when you don't see people immediately like yeah, light on fire well, that's, yeah because because he probably didn't show symptoms for a right. few hours isn't the area where they even fucking tried all the manhattan project stuff is like pretty just radioactive yeah, and sterile they, anyway <laughs> they didn't know what what to do yeah Th- there must have been as far as these guys are concerned who were doing these experiments there had to have been a level of no fear involving right. radiation right? that we have it so embedded in us that radiation is like this silent killer right. that to like, mm-hmm. holy shit, if there's a mushroom cloud on the horizon, like I'm not afraid of being blown up by that, but I am terrified of where the wind is blowing. Exactly. And back then they knew little enough about it that they were just like, ah, so I hang out near a plutonium core. Whatever, <laughs> yeah. man. What's the big deal? Who cares? Yeah. I'll be fine. I'll be f- just Let me fine. just smoke this cigarette. Yeah, exactly. So what got me thinking about liquid ventilation, as it's known, is in the movie, when they go to be transported, there's like a goo that forms around them right. before they get shot off into space. Really? Yeah, some CG goo. And, yeah, some CG goo. And it reminded me of in The Abyss when Ed Harris has to like go into a diving suit that's filled with liquid, but mm-hmm. it's a special liquid that allows him to still breathe and go to an incredibly mm-hmm. deep depth. And this is a real thing. That there's an actual, there's a substance that's a perfluorocarbon-based synthetic liquid, which, by the way, I mentioned in the Virtuosity episode, because perfluorocarbons were the basis of the only blood substitute, the oxygen-carrying blood substitute. So it makes sense that this would be Mm -hmm. carrying oxygen, and so was that fake blood. So mice could breathe the perfluorocarbons, the PFCs, under normal atmospheric conditions, rats could be submerged for up to 20 hours and cats could last weeks. Wow. Their study also employed silicone oils as an alternative to PFCs, but it turns out that silicone oil is really toxic to mammals only after returning to breathing normal air. Interesting. So okay. they thought that they were onto something and then they like returned the animals to breathing normal air and they immediately died. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Well, there's that animal experimentation yep, thing. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but the PFCs are the only current like acceptable liquid ventilation medium that we know of. Like you wouldn't necessarily be able to then go to deep depths without, you know, proper attire then, right? Well, the idea would be if you're breathing PFCs, then your lungs wouldn't have be under the pressure that would cause the bends. Gotcha. Okay. So... 
it's like removing the bends and allowing you to stay at incredibly deep pressures that nobody's ever been to yet. But there's other reasons for this, Uh other uses, such as premature babies. Uh The chemical named (laughs) surfactant that causes the breathing to begin. But premature babies have not developed enough of it to prevent their lungs from folding in on themselves. So we can use perfluorocarbons to allow premature babies to kind of still live and have their lungs not collapse. Yeah. Nice. Okay. I could see some practical uses for this. Yeah. So it's not just for diving. Right. Well, because I was like, yeah, I guess if you want to swim for a while or whatever (laughs) and be able to breathe, but that totally makes sense. And they also think that they can use it eventually for people with like emphysema and lung capacities that are really diminished. This would be more effective maybe even than having an oxygen mask. Mm -hmm. So like even though it had some success, total liquid ventilation is like totally experimental Mm -hmm. still. Partial liquid ventilation is what we're able to do, which is combined with like some actual air used through compressed gas. Mm. Eventually, we want to get to total liquid ventilation, but that's like requires all of this stuff that we can't build yet. Right. Like a dedicated liquid ventilator is what it needs, which is like still in prototype stages and doesn't really work. I mean, you know, I think it's a really great idea to focus on this kind of stuff because yeah. not even I didn't even think about it with regard to premature babies, but you're like. There's plenty of reasons why eventually it's probably going to be helpful for human beings to be able to breathe underwater, i.e. Yeah. the rising sea level. You know what <laughs> oh, I mean? Man. I don't think that America, or not America rather, but just people in general, it's like we're almost too far to turn the clock back, but it's like our innovation and our technology is going to be what allows us to deal with the coming catastrophes. I don't think that we're going to stop the catastrophes necessarily, but like we'll be able to deal with it if those water levels rise, if that means that you live underwater. I do think that there are technologies that can turn back that clock. Not if the whole world's not on board. Well, yeah. That's what I mean. It's like, oh, of course. You're saying in a scenario where... (laughs) nothing gets better and everything keeps getting worse on the planet, we can still survive using spacesuits and stuff. Correct. Correct. Okay. I think the vast majority of the world is on board with this, but, you know, being American, being like one of the primary contributors to the problem, but not being on board with turning back the clock. And especially because so many scientists are like, we're kind of past the breaking point. It's just about trying to slow it. Do Hmm. we know if, is there enough ice in the polar caps to make it so there are no landmass on the earth? No, no. I think it's like, it's like, all of Florida, right. all of New York. It's right. basically, yeah. It like, would shrink everything. Yeah, exactly. In a big way. Exactly. Yeah. I don't know, but then, but yeah. then you think about like all of the other, th- like the weather systems that happen as a result of that. It's mm. less of just things being underwater <laughs> right. than it's like the hurricanes. That's gonna be less space for everyone else to fill. Like, yeah. That's basically what I'm worried about. Is well, like, as you've said, we'll just build up. Also, like, there's a lot of America that's not used. I'm not talking colonizing fucking the Grand Canyon or some of this right. bullshit mining in there, but I'm like. There's so much open grassland in There's America a lot of space, yeah. that it, part of me is a little bit like, well, yeah, maybe if we just spread things out a little. It's just going to be weird to be like, and the ancient New York City, you right. know, like generations in the future. It, it really is going to be like fucking Atlantis. It's great. Well, I hope we keep some wildlife as yeah. we expand over the land masses. Wildlife? You know, or, you know, like trees and stuff and... Hmm. I know oh, that yeah. like there's a lot of farmland and all that. Right, that's but, what I mean. I mean yeah. the land that has nothing on no, it. Yeah, yeah, you know, like fucking Colorado for the most part, Kansas for the most part. You mm. know what I mean? That kind of stuff. But put I up know. a parking lot. Am I right? Yeah, <laughs> pave paradise. Put up a fucking parking lot. 
No, I guess it just, it is, it's very interesting when I see like underwater photographs of ancient cities. Mm. You think about that being like another time, another place. Yeah. And it, it is really weird to think about like New Orleans is going to be one of those. Right. New York City is going to be one of those eventually. I'm not saying within you our lifetime. You see, there are photos of New Orleans that are post Katrina right. that are certainly that. But I'm talking about history books generations mm-hmm. from now being like, oh, there was a thriving metropolis called Manhattan. Science. So I was looking at like the origins of parody. According to Aristotle, Hegemon of Thasos was the inventor of a kind of parody by basically slightly altering the wording in well-known poems. He was able to transform the sublime into the ridiculous. I don't know if it's a question of like, what is that about human nature? What is that about us that like we have to make light of something that is so known and accepted? Number one defense mechanisms, I think, is a sense of humor. Right. It's the way that we deal with how fucked up things are. Mm -hmm. Like in ancient Greek literature, Herodia was a narrative poem imitating the style and prosody of epics, but treating light, satirical, or mock heroic subjects. When you even break down the the Greek word parodia, there's para, which means like beside, counter, or against. And then the oid part Mm -hmm. means song, so it's counter song. And Weird Al was born. Precisely, right? Because you think about some of the people that do parodies that are known more than that. Like Weird Al is known better than right. the vast majority of the artists that he's lampooned after all of these years. You think about like Don Quixote is more known than the book that it actually is making fun of, which is Amadis de Gaula. Have oh, you even heard of that? I, I haven't even know. fucking heard of that. Okay. Well, because I think it is more classic for right. people than the other one. Yeah. Because the other one, there must have been a dime a dozen of these night tales. You know, I mean... There's literally a Canterbury tale called The Knight's Tale. Yeah, it's exactly. Like, Punching mm, up to power, mm. making fun of this brute machismo bullshit, but, you know, homeboy gets scared by a mouse squeaking. But parody is sort of like an homage because something yeah. has to be pretty relevant in your consciousness to be able to parody it and you know exactly what gets parodied. Yeah, you know? well, one of the things I really like about this movie is that the culture that surrounds Star Trek is so crazy, you know, right. with Trek the fans yeah. and... And conventions and the way the actors feel towards the show. But you can also feel with the way that the movie's written that the writers really kind of have a love for these people. And they have a love for the situation, even though they're making fun of it. Right. And that's important to me in parody. If if you hate the thing that you're parodying, that comes across and that's not fun. No, I was going to say, like, that might be why a lot of those, like, scary movie movies didn't Mm. work for me. because And I was like, no, they had love for it. They just went about it in a completely, like, retrograde, like... That's gross. You were mentioning Naked Gun, and I think that's like, to bring up Family Guy, there's kind of these individual jokes that if you took them out of context, they work as a joke. Mm -hmm. And they're not very deep. I just think that this movie succeeds with both loving what it's parodying and having the comedy coming from character and story and not from like, well, remember that episode of Trek? Right, We're making fun of that. Did you have any favorite lines? No, I'm never going to watch this movie again, and that's that's fine by me. Did okay. you? Not that that would lead to any good discussion. Cool. <laughs> so, in that case, remember to rate and review us on iTunes. If there's feedback, we are at No But That's A Thing on Twitter. We are at No But That's A Thing on Facebook. You can email at us at NoButThat'sAThing at gmail.com. And on our website, NoButThat'sAThing.com, there are comments on the episodes if you want to use that as the way to give feedback. 
any way you want to get in touch and start a conversation, if you disagree with us, please go ahead. We yeah, love totally. It. And if you if you've discovered any new cool sciencey things that have happened, let us know. Thanks for joining, guys. Have, have a, a good great week. day. Bye.